So tonight is going to begin a, a short Advent series looking at the minor prophets and what they have to say regarding uh, the coming of Christ. They have a lot to say, obviously, um, but I've tried to highlight four or five um, of the uh, kind of crucial um, lodestar texts that uh, indicate the coming of Christ. Uh, so tonight, Malachi, let's find Matthew, and then it's right before Matthew, we're reading the last chapter of the Old Testament tonight. This is a chapter that details for us God's judgment. So there is um, some thematic overlap with what we considered even this morning. That was not necessarily intentional. But um, we're, of course, uh, looking to hear how even when God uh, promises he'll send judgment, he always promises there will be salvation from that judgment for those who turn to him. Malachi 4, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Uh, We look now back to verse 1, and we see that Malachi is describing a day, and it's going to be a hot one. That's something we might say in... July or August, as we kind of go out to get our mail and we bump into our neighbor, it's going to be a hot one. Well, that's what Malachi is saying, and he's not referring to the day in which he's writing it. He's referring to, well, as he puts it, the day when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. What day is this? Isn't it interesting how he's so very um, generic? Just says the day. The day is coming. It is such a momentous event that it actually can be simply called the day. The day. Now, we we are given more specifics in verse 5. We're we're told he's referring to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And yet, the day of the Lord, it's just so um, notorious, infamous. It's it's so... um, terrifying and terrible and and righteous and all of these things that it, it sort of needs no introduction it doesn't need you know it's 
I think it's a sign of, of your celebrity status if you can just be Adele or just share or just have one name, right? And there doesn't need to be a, Adele who. We all get it. We know. And that's the minor prophets, especially um, Isaiah some as well. Uh, th- there, this reference to the day happens um, over a dozen times. But it's talking about the day of the Lord. And that phrase, the day of the Lord, is talking about um, uh, the end of all things. Uh, it's, it's a favorite classification for what we might call the day of judgment. We might call it the apocalypse. We might call it the second coming of Christ. It's all the same, and it, it can all be just simply referred to as the day. Uh, and it's a, f- a fitting thematic conclusion to this book. Malachi, in his prophecy, has been speaking uh, to a people who don't really act like God exists. Or, if he does exist, he's not all that important, and he doesn't deserve or require all my attention, all my devotion, all my affection. And so there have been admonishments and there have been rebukes throughout Malachi in these previous three chapters um, for people that the, and this is the people of God he's, he's prophesying to. Uh, verse 1, chapter 1, it's the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel. Uh, there have been these admonishments for the people to turn back to God, to repent, to change. Um, but lastly... In chapter 4, they need to know what's going to happen if they don't, if they don't change. And so Malachi describes the day of the Lord. That's the first thing we're going to consider is the day of the Lord. Uh, And then um, we will uh, segue from that into our our second and final point. But first, the day of the Lord and its description. It's burning like an oven. Verse 1. An oven... Um, which gets to even greater temperature than an open flame. So it's not burning like a campfire. It's burning like an oven. Uh, The image is meant to evoke the wrath of God. And we use similar metaphors today. We can say someone's white hot with rage um, and so on. And scripture has already spoken this way. Consider Psalm 2 and verse 12. Kiss the son lest, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled like a fire. There's, again, this metaphor of wrath being like fire. Isaiah 30, 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick, rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. A devouring fire. So, the uh, point of Malachi's image is twofold. First, He wants to describe the scope of God's judgment. And we touched on that very briefly this morning when I mentioned that the Ark of the Covenant was in uh, the Philistine territory for seven months. And we said that seven is the number of completion, totality. It's signaling that God's wrath comes in its fullness for those who um, turn from him, who, who, who are in rebellion to him. That is, sins don't get punished a little and they don't get punished lightly. Uh, But God's power, glory, majesty, his holiness demands that every sin gets a full response. Well, that's sort of what Malachi is trying to get at with the image of the fire here. The scope of God's wrath. That all the arrogant, that's the word he uses, the arrogant, and all the evildoers will face God's fury. Um, And like some of those terrible wildfires that we have witnessed in this country and or up north, uh, nothing can escape its path. So that's, that's one 
um, idea, the, to- the scope of it, uh, but not just the scope. The second thing is, I think, the totality. So first, who will be judged? All evildoers, all the arrogant, but then how will they be judged? It's with this total wrath. It's not just that it, God's wrath comes upon the wicked. It's that it consumes the wicked. And when something's consumed, that means there's nothing left. There's no chance of surviving it. What will become of the evil? We're told at the end of verse, uh, or the first sentence, evildoers will be stubble. Or later on the verse, it will leave them neither root nor branch. I once listened to um, an interview on a podcast with a, a, um, a guy whose job was, his job title was fire investigator. Um, I didn't know that that was a job, uh, but that was his title and fire investigator. And what, what his job was is that when somebody refor- reports a wildfire, uh, the State Department of Forestry would send him to investigate what caused the wildfire. And uh, the, the work that they do is just absolutely insane. They, they're brilliant people. They go to the scene of a wildfire sometimes weeks after the fire is, is out, sometimes months after. And they can determine the location of the start of that fire. Sometimes uh, a 10,000-acre fire, they can determine the start of it down to a square inch. And then they can determine what caused it. Um, uh, investigators like this one that I was listening to um, can find things like uh, a cigarette bud uh, that, that caused a 10,000-acre wildfire. It's hard to imagine that anything could be left if you've seen those images you know, from things in Canada not that long ago or in California. Um, but even then, things are left behind. Not so with the day of the Lord. There will be neither root nor branch. There will be no evidence that you ever existed. I mean, that, it's, it's, it's gone entirely. The fire, the wrath of God will leave neither root nor branch. Malachi, what's he doing when he writes like this? He's stripping away any false sense of security that you or I might be holding on to. Yeah, God is holy. I know he's strict. I know he'll judge. But you know, at least I went to church. At least I, I did catechisms with my kids. At least I, I gave to charities. I never argued with my pastor. Right? We, these things that we think, well, th- I'll, I'll be able to cling, cling to this. I could, I could claim this. No. No, no. It's a total wrath. The day of the Lord sounds scary. It's meant to. Uh, don't. If you're feeling that, allow that feeling to sink in. It, it, you're supposed to feel that when you read this. Um, but we also need to recognize that that's not the way we need to experience that day. That is not how we need to experience it. And Malachi tells us as much. He makes a distinction between the arrogant evildoers. And then verse 2, he, he makes a transition. But for, for, for you who, who fear my name... Um, it will be entirely different. So there's this total wrath of God. And there's the, the scope of God's wrath. Every sinner will be punished. And then the totality of the wrath, their sins will be punished entirely. That comes on those who are unrepentant. They're, the day of the Lord is devoid of mercy, entirely devoid of mercy. But for those who fear the name of the Lord, for those who turn to him, for those who trust in him, that day will be filled with nothing but the mercy of God. 
nothing but God's mercy. And if the description of this great day has caused you to shudder in fear, or maybe even to cross your arms, uh, you know, in kind of disgust or disdain for a, a God who's supposedly good, but would do something as harsh as this, then I want you to know that this is not a judgment God is eager to, to mete out. It, this isn't um, something that brings him delight. The heart of God, the, the character of God, is one that leans towards mercy, right? He's, he's abundant, as the, the biblical authors say over and over again. It's like the, the theme, the refrain, the chorus of the Bible is that the Lord is slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love. Anger is, is, is rightly attributed to the Lord. Righteous anger, wrath. But when, when you compare that to his mercy, the one is overflowing and superabundant. The other one is described as short. Right? This is really what God is like. This is why the scriptures tell us he's desiring that none should perish, but that all should seek repentance and, and find salvation. So... Uh, God is kind in that he warns sinners of the coming judgment that we've just described in order to spare them from it. And I, so I, I, what I want us to do now as we conclude is um, consider that mercy of God and how he helps us to prepare for that final day. Uh, notice three ways in which he helps us prepare. Three ways we can consider his mercy. So we saw the day of the Lord. Now we're considering the mercies of the Lord. Two of these... Um, Mercies Malachi is aware of. One, he isn't, although he points us to it nevertheless. The first mercy of God in, in preparing us for that day so that we don't have to experience, experience it devoid of mercy, but rather overflowing with mercy. The first, the first way that we see it is the text itself. Where do I see God's mercy in this text? It is the text. The description of what lies ahead for those who are arrogant or evildoers, for those who are lost in their sin. That description is a mercy itself. Why do we have passages like this in the Bible? So that we would wise up, that we would repent, and that we wouldn't experience them. God doesn't have to tell us what's coming, but he chooses to tell us what's coming. And he does so to save sinners. Now, not all sinners heed the warning but a warning is precisely what it is. So that's the first thing. That's a mercy of God. He warns us by describing that day. There's a second mercy, though, that's described for us in this passage. And it's another way God warns us and prepares us for that day. And it's that he sent preachers to, to proclaim that this day is coming. And specifically, Malachi wants to talk about John the Baptist. Look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah... The prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So before this terrible, what's called great or awesome day comes, I'll send you Elijah the prophet. Why? He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So that there can be some of you saved and you're not entirely wiped out, I'm sending a prophet to prepare and that reference to Elijah, who is long dead at this point, as Malachi's writing, is fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. And, and the New Testament makes that very clear. There's, that we don't need to be confused at all of who Malachi is talking about. Uh, consider in Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah in the temple. 
And he tells him, you're going to conceive and you're going to have a child. Uh, Boys and girls, you remember this story. Uh, Zechariah doesn't believe, and so he leaves there not able to speak. But what does Gabriel say about the child that he's going to have? He says that he will have the power and spirit of Elijah. And then Gabriel quotes Malachi 4 and says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. He goes on and says the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people who are prepared. John is coming to make people ready to meet with God and not to meet him as judge but to meet him as savior. So uh, Gabriel tells us that Malachi is referring to John the Baptist. And Jesus himself tells us, Matthew eleven thirteen and 14, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, or you know, in other words, if you're willing to believe it, he is Elijah who is to come. So Jesus tells us when there's this reference to Elijah, it's actually about John the Baptist. They shared a number of things in common in their ministries, Uh, That's why he's referred to here as Elijah. But the point that we want to see is that God is sending a herald. God isn't sending a surprise attack, although he could. He doesn't need to tell us um, that that he's going to come in, in wrath and in mercy. But he has no interest in surprising us. Why? Because that's not his heart. It's not to destroy sinners. His heart is to change sinners, to change people like you and me. What a merciful God we have. Uh, Boys and girls, some of you know the story of the Revolutionary War and how the blacksmith, Paul Revere, had a really important mission, right? In that he uh, was uh, tasked with riding the midnight ride of Paul Revere, right? Riding through the towns and alerting uh, the people uh, that the British were coming. Remember, that was the refrain. The British are coming. The British are coming. And and. The, the question wasn't so much that, that if they were coming or not, but how they were coming. And so there was this signal they had in the Old North Church there in Boston. Um, there would be two lanterns, two if, one if by land, two if by sea, right? Are they going to march their way over? Are they going to go through the uh, Charles uh, River to make their attack? And once Revere got his message, he set off on that ride, and he made so much noise so that everybody could be ready. And that's sort of the responsibility of John the Baptist, that's, that's kind of like what he was doing. He was to go through the land and warn people that the Lord was coming. The Lord's coming. He's coming in judgment. Uh, John clearly understood repentance was necessary for people to endure the day. If anybody asks, what was the great like, theme of, of John's ministry? It was repentance. He wanted people to turn, to change, to repent. Uh, this is what he preaches in Matthew 3. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. But even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into, what? Interestingly, the fire. Again, God's wrath. Uh, is equated with a fire. And John is telling you, you need to change. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Otherwise, you'll be taken like a tree that's not bearing fruit. You'll be cut down and cast into the fire. But, of course, as God's word does come uh, and, 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 and through John's ministry and begins to dawn on the people, there, there is change. There's heart change. There is relational change. The people begin to love as they should. Not all of them, of course, uh, but they, that's witnessed even in the most basic um, essential building block of society in the family, right? He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. And so, uh, again, we see 
the kindness of the Lord, the mercy of God, that he would send somebody like John the Baptist to tell people they need to be prepared, to help them be prepared by preaching the word of God, so that when the day of the Lord comes, they are ready to meet God, and not to meet him as judge, but to meet him as merciful Savior. And then, of course, we could, we could extrapolate from that, that, that all preachers, all true faithful preachers, are sort of in the uh, are sort of descendants from John, fulfilling in some way a similar ministry, which is to help God's people be prepared to meet Him. I've heard pastors say, um, or a pastor say, but I can't remember who, when somebody said, "What what's your job?" or like you know, like what do you do? In, instead of just saying, um, "I'm a pastor," sort of to evoke a conversation, says, um, "My job is I prepare people to die well." Now, I don't know what kind of reaction that would get. Maybe that would scare some people. But if you think about it, that is, is that not what gospel ministry is about, right? There's, there's a, lot of things, a lot of things pastors do, but at the end of the day, it comes down to this. Are you ready to meet your Lord, your maker? Uh, pastors, just like John the Baptist, ever, ever, since, uh, pastors, ever since John the Baptist, pastors have been after the same thing, calling people to repent, to turn, and to be, to be prepared to meet the Lord, it's a kindness of God that he sends someone like John the Baptist and gives ample warning. In fact, you know, in this way, if you think about it, that Paul Revere analogy kind of breaks down because um, it would be as though the British had sent Paul Revere to warn the people. Hey, Paul, can you go and tell um, all these Minutemen uh, that we're going to come because uh, we would really, uh, we would like it if they all survived our attack? I mean, that would be absurd. And yet that's what God has done. Uh, tell them I'm coming because I want them to be saved. So th- those are two mercies we see. Just the description of the day is a mercy. The fact that God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way is a mercy. And then I said there's a third one. And here's the one that Malachi wouldn't have understood. Although he does allude to it. God shows his mercy in helping us prepare for the final day. By sending his son. Uh, the Ma- uh, Malachi and the other prophets didn't, didn't understand this. That the day of the Lord that they spoke of so often. That great day. Is actually two days. It's actually two days. Uh, the day of the Lord. First is when he comes as a sympathetic savior. As an understanding friend. A, a compassionate brother as a sacrificial substitute. The second day of the Lord is when he comes as the judge. And it is the first arrival that is indeed the greatest preparation we have for the second. His first arrival is the greatest thing to prepare us for the second arrival. In one sense, though, it's also the hardest preparation because what do we need to have regarding this first arrival, we need faith. Malachi himself speaks in verse 2 of faith when he talks about those who fear God's name. That's faith language. So what do we need? We need faith that that baby born in Bethlehem is actually the Lord. We need faith that that poor carpenter's kid, that strange man from Nazareth is actually a lot more than what meets the eye. We need to have faith that he is the Lord of glory. That he is the Lord referred to in the prophets. That when they talked about the day of the Lord 
He's the Lord whose day it is. It's his day. Can you believe it? Um, can you believe that in the manger, this is one of the great Christmas carols we sing, Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? That that little baby hung every star in place. Well, you must believe it. It makes all the difference. It is simple faith in Jesus as the Lord of Lords. Simple faith in him that will preserve you on that second day. Simple faith that will preserve you on the second coming of Christ. That's what will change it from a day of judgment to a day of deliverance. A day of destruction to a day of deliverance. Look how Malachi describes the day for Christians. For, uh, verse 2. It's an entirely different day than is described in verse 1. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So there's heat for the believers also. But it's a different kind of heat. It's not a heat that hurts, that burns up. It's a heat that heals, that builds up. It has the heal, you know, the sun in God's great design. The sun doesn't just give us light to see things by, but it actually has restorative properties. You know, we want to make sure you're getting your vitamin D. Uh, it brings health and healing to us. On, on days like today, uh, or days like today are the reason why, you know, when Jacob and I are ever on a walk outside in, in the, the dreary Michigan winter and the sun peeks out, we say, wait, stop, Jake. We'll say, it's, we, need to have a, we need to have a sun break. And what that means is that we stop whatever we're doing, we close our eyes, we turn our head to the sun, and we see how long we can stand there without, you know, okay, we need to keep walking because we're getting cold. We call those our sun breaks. We try to get as many as we can in the winter. Why? Because it brings healing to us, right? It brings health to us. And that's the sun of righteousness. Now, it's not a, a sun in the sky, a, 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 something that brings physical restoration, but brings the thing that our souls are lacking so terribly, righteousness. Now, this is quite the metaphor. It's used elsewhere in Scripture. God's called a sun and a shield in Psalm 84, Isaiah 60. We're told that the Lord rises over his people so that his glory will shine upon them, covering them like light. This righteousness of God will heal his people. Uh, what's up with the wings, though, right? That sounds weird. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. That's another word for rays. That's how we would say it today. But, um, but in the ancient world, when they would depict the sun, where they would draw the sun, they would make a little disc that had like bird wings on it. That's how they tried to draw the rays of the sun. And so there's healing within the rays, the light, the glory that emanates from who? From Jesus. We're talking about Jesus and Charles Wesley got that so right when he has us sing, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And so now, what happens to God's people? How do they experience that day? First, the Son of Righteousness dawns on them, restores them, 
And it says, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. God's elect shall leap like a calf from the stall. What's he talking about there? It's the, uh, it's the way that um, Obi tears through the house when we let him out of the pen after we've been gone all day, right? Freedom at last. Or if you've ever you know, held a little baby who's been swaddled for a long time, maybe sleeping in their swaddle for a couple of hours, and you undo the swaddle, and then right away the arms go up and the legs go out, right? That stretch, the glorious stretch, post-swaddle stretch free that's that's us right the bondage of sin has been removed from us uh the the ways in which we are so fall uh, fallen so short of god's glory all of that has been handled for us in christ who gives us his righteousness and now we're free now we can be who we're meant to be and we will tread down the wicked Christ shares his victory with us. Did you notice that? We go out leaping like those who are free at last, and you shall tread down the wicked. For there'll be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Isn't that interesting? On the day when I act, you get to participate. On the day that I act, they'll be under the soles of your feet, as though God, what, he shares his victory with us. Paul says the same thing in, near the end of Romans. He says, and soon God will crush Satan. That's been the promise since Genesis 3.15, right? God will crush Satan, the serpent. But then what does Paul say? It takes your breath away. Soon he will crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. Do you see how the day of the Lord, that great day, the one that we are longing for. When we say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, we're praying for redemption and rescue, but it will mean judgment, of course, for those who have not turned to Christ. But how it is so different for us. We're not any uh, better than, than those who will receive the judgment. We're all sinners, yet we have turned, we've repented, we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And you see how it's entirely different for us. For them, they receive the judgment. For us, we participate in it. Everything is flipped upside down for the believer. We're given the end of the story, as it were. And this is a great comfort to the perplexed righteous who wonder, why is it that the wicked seem to prosper? We're given this little window, this little picture of the end. We're told that the wicked's prospering will be brief, and it will actually soon be reversed. And so this is what we have to look forward to, because... Christ came that first day of the Lord, not to judge, but actually to be a substitute for us. Now that we've put our faith in that substitution, if you have indeed done that tonight, if you're putting your faith in the work of the, the, the Lord of glory when he came the first time, when he comes the second time, you have nothing to fear, nothing at all. It won't be a day of judgment. It will be a day of mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. We thank you that... Uh, you give us your Holy Spirit to, to help understand and to discern these matters. We ask that your Spirit would, would still be with us to attend uh, the word that we have read and heard. Would he come as the after preacher uh, to apply it to our hearts? We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.